I always talk about rewatchability. If afterwards I say to myself, would I want to go see this movie? Virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast. On the previous Cinephile, I said never underestimate the audience. The lesson after last week's Cinephile... Never underestimate Stanzik, because when he wants to bring the heat on a quiz that nobody will get, he will do so. The previous Cinephile quiz, we had 10 correct answers in 20 hours, and a total of 50, and they were still trickling in. On the last episode, Stanzik dialed up an absolute doozy, which nobody got right, and here is what is perhaps more telling than anything. Now, I get the fact we released the last episode on the election, so I don't know what the numbers were. Maybe people didn't listen to it. I love Matt Atchity. If you didn't listen, you're missing out. Rotten Tomatoes, I thought he was a terrific interview. And my brother actually said he thought it was one of our better episodes. So maybe just people didn't listen to it as much. That's fine. But I here's what's more telling is that nobody even attempted the quiz. And, and in fact, a couple of people tweeted me going, hey, dude, I listen to the podcast all the time. I'm a huge fan. There's zero chance I would get this right. What the hell is your voice dancing to me? I said, what he's doing is he's following my orders, which was, listen, we had a, a too easy quiz before, so we had to make it harder. Now we figured it out. Happy medium. That's it. We just got to find the happy medium. The first first one underestimated the audience yeah. this time. Maybe we overestimated a little bit. I think the hardest question was, what movie did I see for $5.23 in Iowa? That was when the people go, you know what? Screw that. I don't need a shirt, buddy. This is way too much work. have to listen to your stupid podcast to find out what movie you saw in Iowa. Why were you in Iowa? And why were you spending $5.23 to go see a movie? Anyways, we'll get another quiz uh, maybe next time. We'll figure it out. But thank you for all your feedback as always. This is a great cinephile coming up. The great Billy Bob Thornton, one of my favorite actors. And as you'll hear in this interview, if you kind of like him a little bit, don't know a lot about him, I think if you listen to this interview, you're going to love the guy because he is uh, candid. He's insightful. Uh, honest, he's funny, he's self-deprecating, he has all those things wrapped up into one terrific package, and his acting over the years has proven what a great actor he is. But like I said, once you listen to this interview, we talk about Sling Blade and um, all the wonderful films that he's made. So take a listen to Blade Bob Thornton, and then I will tell you a couple of tidbits about him off the air. Stanzik and I had some interaction with him, which is also interesting because he had a bit of a rap, I think, from some as being a tough interview. If you Google his name, particularly look up an interview he did uh, in Canada, it's like, oh, my God, believe Bob Thornton, he's a tough interview. And, in fact, Ryan Rosilla, who also interviewed him when he came to ESPN, was like, yeah, I did some research. And I was like, this guy's a, a terrible interview. Like, I'm really worried. And he was sensational with Ryan. And, in fact, he was great on all ESPN platforms. So I asked him about it, and I'll tell you what he said to me after. But first, take a listen to Billy Bob. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, and a real thrill to have one of the best actors alive here with us in studio, Billy Bob Thornton. Great to see you, man. I've been a fan of yours for so many years, and what was really cool about all of this is that when I heard you were coming, I got to go back and revisit a lot of your classic films. And I want to ask you first and foremost about One False Move, because I remember I didn't know anything about you, and that was the film that to me introduced me to you. You wrote the script with Tom Epperson, and I remember Siskel and Ebert's review. They were like, you have got to see this film. And I was 13 years old, came out in 1991, and I said, well, what's so special about this action thriller? And I went back and I watched it again last night. That first scene where you hogtie the woman and you're threatening to light her on fire, like it, it comes out like gangbusters. And, and the greatness of that movie, for those who haven't seen it, it's not only a thriller. It's a commentary on race. It's a commentary on city versus country. It's about family. Like it, it's an extraordinary movie. And I'm just wondering for you, when you have memories of one false move, what stands out to you? 
People didn't want us to use that title because there were several movies in the catalog, you know, over mm-hmm. the years called Hurricane. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it was called Star City. And, and then finally, one of the studio guys named it One False Move. We didn't even title it. And, wow. uh, but we, and at the time, we thought it sounded kind of like a B-movie title. Right. It sounds like a, a, a you know generic I mean? thriller. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we, we weren't crazy about the title. And, uh, yeah, it worked out okay. But, uh, you know, Carl Franklin, who directed the movie, Carl is a terrific actor's director. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was really happy to be with a good actor's director early on like that because, uh, you know, some people get with the wrong people and develop bad habits. Right. And uh, it, I think he did a great job on it. And, and you're right. The movie is about a lot of different things. Uh, and uh, it's the kind of movie because the independent film business is pretty much done for right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all on TV. You either do event movies for the studios or you do Amazon, Netflix, whatever. And uh, that movie and Sling Blade and Monsters Ball, Man It Wasn't There, a lot, a lot of movies that I've done over the years probably either wouldn't get made now or would get made for a couple million dollars and nobody would ever see them. Yeah, you dovetail perfectly to my next point, which is 20th anniversary of Sling Blade this month. Right. And I can't imagine you trying to sell someone on that movie. Like I have, right. I was trying to tell someone, I'm like, well, it's about this slow-witted guy who gets released and uh, befriends his kid, ends up killing a guy because he's an abusive father, and he ends up back where he belongs. I'm like, Wait, what? Right. <laughs> I'm like, exactly. Oh, yeah, like, what? Yeah. how could you sell this movie? But yeah. And I think people forget, Billy Bob, they think you won the Oscar for acting, but it was the screenplay. Right. Because you had come up with the story. Some folks called it a Kaiser Blade, some folks called it a Sling Blade. Right. But how were you able to make that movie in 1996 and have it transcend, like you said, beyond just this independent bubble? Right. Well, you know, from the late 80s through the late 90s, there was sort of an independent film renaissance. Uh, period. Uh, it was a really rich time for independent film. And, you know, Miramax had a lot to do with that. And uh, uh, it was it, it was a time when those were sought after. Those, you know, somebody wanted the next real edgy, you know, sort of uh, liter- anti-hero, anti-hero and, and also, you know, indie-feeling, rough-edged kind of movie, you know. And uh, – I, I sold that movie to the first people I talked to, really my, my agent over at William Morris. He just said, hey, there's this guy, uh, he, he, like they were production assistants, and now their you know, parents got, you know, gave him some money to make movies with. <laughs> they had made one movie, I think, before uh, Sling Blade for like $60,000. Wow. And something that I've, I don't even know if I've ever said it publicly. I've told friends of mine, but uh, – uh, one of the things about Sling Blade is that they didn't have all the money. Uh, they, were, they said, this is going to be our first million-dollar movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, we can't pay you uh, as a director or, or, or anything, but you know we have to pay you as an actor because of the union stuff, but I wasn't in the DGA yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we're doing is we're looking for people with a script who want to direct their own movie because uh, we can't afford directors, but we'll let you direct it, and we'll give you 50% of it, of the wow. gross. And uh, I said, yeah, okay, because we expect – I thought my mom and a few friends would see it, you know. Right, right. And uh, so one way or the other, what they didn't tell me at the time was that they didn't have the money. They were getting the money as we were making the movie. Like wow. they had $30,000 when we started. I mean if I had known that, I would have been a nervous wreck, right. you know, but I had no idea. And like – 
Uh, that's a fortune. Like a million dollars for an independent oh. film at that time, it's a oh. fortune. Like, right. You're thinking, we're good. We got this. Idea. Yeah, absolutely. But that, that if, like you said, the fact you didn't have that, imagine yeah. that anxiety and unease. Oh. Like that's constantly weighing you the whole exactly. time. Exactly. Yeah. I love that J.T. Walsh monologue at the start cracks me up. Oh, yeah, I know, right? J.T. was great. <laughs> the story he him. tells you, like, then, then the penis comes out, and you're like, oh, yeah. mm, and he goes, mm. Oh, yeah. The, the only downside to Sling Babe, it's the only flaw in the movie, is that every damn person that sees it ends up doing an impression of Carl. And it's oh, always, yeah. why is it always fried cinnamon taters? Mm. They always mention French fried potatoes. It's like, I don't, and, you know, I don't care really that, uh, if people love your movie, they can love it for whatever reason, but it is a little disconcerting to me that you know people will come up to me sometimes and say man i love sling blade man that thing was hilarious and i'm like really so you didn't you didn't get the whole religion part and the you know right, all the of- underlying <laughs> themes I, I i guess weren't on t- at the top of your list here no, i just like when he said to john ritter hey not yeah. funny haha funny queer like, uh, right, exactly. right, thanks buddy uh, yeah right it's not under the comedy section of the yeah piece. yeah um I read today's Martin Scorsese's birthday. We all love Scorsese, obviously. Yeah. I read he gave you editing tips on Sling Blade. Is that true? Well, you know, I, what happened was they the studio wanted me to cut it. Once we sold it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, to the distributor for more than I ever dreamed of, mm-hmm. uh, they wanted me to cut the movie down to, you know, they always want you to cut things always. to an hour. Hour right? 20. Let's just yeah, go. Exactly. Leave it all the character development. And so uh, – I sent it to Martin Scorsese on video cassette, <laughs> and I because he was a fan of One False Move, and he I'd met him at something once, and he said, uh, "If you ever need anything, let me know." He said, "You know, you're going to do okay in this business, whatever, you know, kid, that yeah. kind of thing." Right. And um, so I took him up on it, and I don't even think he remembered, you know, probably even meeting me, but right. And probably doesn't remember this, but I, I sent it off to him. I called him up and I said, you, you said if, you know, if you could ever help. <laughs> so I said, they want me to cut this movie. Uh, it's, uh, you know, my first movie, I, I'd done a documentary before, but that was it. And uh, I said, would you watch this and tell me if you think it needs cut? And I said, because I would listen to you. Mm-hmm. And it had no music yet or anything, you know, two hours and 17 minutes. Mm-hmm. And sent it to him and. I heard back from him a couple of weeks later, and he said, don't cut a frame. And uh, he said, and, and aside from anything creative, he goes, I personally happen to think this is a great movie, and I think you're going to do very well with it. You may even collect uh, an award for this wow. movie, you know. But he said, um, the reason I'm telling you this is because right now you're under the radar. You're starting out and everything. He said, this is probably the only time, only chance you'll ever have in your career to do a movie exactly the way you want to do it. He said, after, once you become a big deal, they'll never leave you alone again. And he was right. Uh, yeah, you'd think it's the other way around. Right. But in fact, when they don't care about you yet, that's when they'll let you get by with stuff. And see, the, the original company, the shooting gallery that gave me the money to make the movie, mm-hmm. or that that <laughs> doled out the money to me to make the movie, uh, they... Uh, uh, gave me Final Cut. So when we sold it to the distributor, our distributor already had Final Cut. So they couldn't make me cut it. Right. And that's why I sent it to Scorsese. Well, it's amazing because <clears throat> you think about independent filmmakers and guys that have kind of stayed true to their vision. And one of those guys, along with yourself, or a group of people, is the Cone Brothers. Right. And I don't – it's right there with Sling Blade, but the man who wasn't there to me I think is your best work. I think it's extraordinary. And it it's like you take it personally when you really love an actor. You go, why didn't enough people see that movie? Like I, yeah. I it's a film noir. 
It's beautifully shot. The, the, the dialogue's amazing. The scene with Tony Shalhoub and you, where Freddie right. Reed and I'm an attorney. You're a barber. You don't right. know anything. Exactly. Thanks, <laughs> <laughs> Scarlett Johansson, when she says to you, like, I get it. You're an enthusiast. No. How did you play Because I had to imagine as an actor, it, it's easy. Pacino said this with The Godfather. It's easy to play Sonny because mm. you're fiery and volcanic. It's right. harder to play Michael because it's inward. Right. That character you play in The Man Who Wasn't There, the barber, is so detached mm-hmm. and so taciturn. How, how were you able to do that? Well, it, that was a that was the hardest thing, uh, or at least the the thing that was most concerning before uh, doing the movie was uh, how do you do a whole movie where really you're talking in voiceover the whole movie and you're not you, know, you don't have a lot of dialogue you're just sitting there smoking and looking at people, <laughs> and uh, uh, one of the things that I do uh, when I'm playing a character that's that inside themselves uh, is that on the set I'm not that way all the time. In other words. If you're just sitting there, uh, Robert Duvall told me years ago there's a thin line between subtle and boring. And uh, uh, I think that you've got to, first of all, you have to hold the camera. Mm-hmm. And uh, there has to be an intensity inside you in order to, to, to do that. And so on the set, I would talk to people right up to the time we say action. I, I didn't sit in the corner and sulk. That would just keep me in the same spot. So in other words, if it's almost like, you know, they say somebody dies and you see their, you know, something go out of them or whatever, you know, it's like, uh, if, if I've just been sitting around joking with you mm-hmm. and we've been talking about football or whatever it is, you know, and then I sit down, they say, roll, there's still life going on there. See, well, you are reading my yeah. mind because I, I watched monsters, Ball obviously years ago. And I remember watching the outtakes mm-hmm. and exactly what you're referring to. Same thing I do on set on baseball, mm-hmm. Thunder, college football. When the director's going 30 seconds or 10 seconds, I'm still talking because I don't yeah. like the idea of lights on, cue, and you're shot out of a cannon. Exactly. We should already be having a conversation Absolutely. about the car and whatever it is. And the outtake on Monsters Ball is you and Halle Berry driving in a car, and she's just quietly emoting. And you right. are talking as the character right. what he'd be saying prior to the dialogue in the movie. Right. Meaning you're yeah. saying, I'm so sorry about your son. Hopefully yeah. we'll get through this. Then they call action, and you're doing what's actually scripted. But you've right. already had an actual conversation about what the guy would right. have been saying before you see it. Right, exactly. Which is amazing because I can imagine other actors might be unnerved by that. Like, no, I'm in my space, and you're going, no, no, this is actually helping us get into that right. mode. Well, the the point of of good acting is that you're supposed to be real, right? And uh, I of the mind that you don't. I don't know. If, I can only use California because I live in California. <laughs> but if you're, I always looked at acting classes like this. They they take you through all these steps to get to this place. And it, and maybe it works for some people, not for me. Right. But I always uh, said this to young actors. I said, if you're in Santa Monica and you want to go to the airport, you don't go from Santa Monica to Glendale to the airport. Just go to the airport. Right. It's right over there. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, you know, the, I, I just, I just believe that if you have life experience mm-hmm. and you know, you just, talk to people like you talk to them without going out in the hallway and yodeling and stuff first. You know, it's, you know. Well, that's the difference because then I think some would say, so you mean method acting, but it's not like you're staying a character the whole time. No. You're being you. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm me in every role I play. Right. So it's not like yeah. Carl is, is inhabiting the set of, as pretentious no. as that sounds. Yeah. I, I don't even call characters by their other name usually. It's like, it's <laughs> like who, who is William? Well, you know, William's the kind of guy – because you're automatically separating yourself from them. Right. You're, you're making them a mountain you have to climb. And I just don't 
believe that. And also, I don't believe that if uh, – I mean, my dad was like the guy in the man who wasn't there, which, by the way, is my favorite performance I ever did. Oh, it's extraordinary. And, uh, you know, it's it's like um, – you know, when you when you're doing these things, you you have to kind of keep your your life in it. You know, it's like I always tell people my method is uh, started when I was born. You know, if I have a method or a process, it's mm-hmm. like my process was from the time I was born till now. You know, it's not something I concocted. Right. And it's like if an actor's playing a street person, let's say a homeless guy, mm-hmm. and he goes downtown in L.A. and he gets in a cardboard box on Fifth Street and his security guards right there in the car and you know his publicist is on the phone with him and stuff and he spends the night in a cardboard box <laughs> you're still not going to know what it's like to be a homeless guy <laughs> you know what i mean if if you know that you're going back to beverly hills tomorrow right you're not going to know what it's like to be homeless you know well that's the thing you cut yeah. through that pretension i think as well as any actor in hollywood i don't know it's maybe because you're from arkansas and all these other guys maybe grow up in a different environment but i remember the monsters ball again the commentary mark forster i'm sure is a great guy and a good director but he's using all these ethereal thoughts in the commentary and you're just like hey man whatever they just go action and we do it and you're not trying to be denigrating you're just like no. Let, let's not be uh, I, I guess don't make it bigger than it is like, it's an important story and i'm happy to be in service of the story mm-hmm. but the guys that get caught in concepts and they're missing the real substance right. of the art. Well, people want to believe, like like if you do a, a, a Q and A with a group of you know young filmmakers or whatever, or mm-hmm. critics or whatever they are, it's interesting to them to hear about the process, and it's interesting to hear all the tricks of the trade. People desperately desperately want to believe that there's a formula for everything, right. and sometimes there's just not. And I believe. I, for actors, you can either do it or you can't. Mm-hmm. I've never seen uh, an acting coach uh, make a bad actor good. I've seen them make good actors worse. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the same with sports you know what I mean? I'll meet young guys yeah. and I'll go, okay, I think you have something. You just need to cultivate it. Yeah. I see some that I go, I just don't see it, man. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's not your deal. See, like, for instance, I people assume that actors can do any other kind of entertainment thing right not true not a good public speaker i I could never like i'm the wrong guy to host something right for instance i'm i'm too scattered i have add i'm dyslexic there's all kind of reasons for me to not be a host but you're a musician (laughs) box cutters you guys are successful so you have other talents oh absolutely music i grew up in that's fine on stage playing music but i mean just as a like as a talk show host or uh or like what you guys do right i'm a sports guy right but i Jack Buck got me – Jack Buck and, and Mike Shannon, because I'm a Cardinal guy, they got me in the booth with them one time at a Cardinal game. And Shannon said, come on, Billy. Call, we're going to have you call an inning. And Jack said, yeah, yeah, that'd be good. And right. I, I, Jack looked a little hesitant, but, <laughs> but, you know, Shannon, you know, he, oh, he don't a, care. He's, you know? Yeah, he's a character. And, uh, and they were playing Toronto, I believe it was. And this was in a this was in a, a, a spring game, you know, and uh, or, or maybe it wasn't. I just remember. I remember Ken Seiko was still there. That's all I remember. Yeah, six was the Jays briefly. Yeah. But because uh, he he came to the plate and they let me call an inning. How'd you do? Horrible. <laughs> I, I mean, I was and I'm a baseball guy. Right. I know. You I literally, it. I'm looking at this this guy and I go, uh, Jose Canseco uh, comes up to the plate and. Uh, <laughs> 
and he bats toward the ball and, you know, stuff like that. I mean, Were you saying like too much of, or not enough stuff? Nothing. I was nothing. babbling just, just like babbling. an idiot. And I looked at Shannon and I said, I can't. you got to do it. <laughs> you know? We all have to know our strengths and weaknesses. Uh, Bad Santa is one of the funniest movies of this century. Bad Santa 2 is going to be now in theaters. I've seen it. I encourage all of you to go check it out. There was no bigger laugh for me, my brother, and my cousins, when the guy comes to your door and wants you to, to join in the festivities and you said, Sorry, we don't celebrate Christmas. We're Muslim. So all oh, of right. me, yeah, me and my family, like, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly what we used to always right. say. Exactly. Like, no, hey, we're, right. we don't celebrate Christmas. We get right. off our back. Yeah. You see a reindeer on our roof? <laughs> get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so we all love it. I've read that when you got the script, you were like, okay, either this is going to be a gigantic hit or this is it. Yeah. I'm packing my bags and right. back to Arkansas. Exactly. Why do you think it was able to connect with audiences? You know, I, I think it's an alternative uh, uh to the usual over-sentimental kind of movies, you know. It's my and, favorite Christmas movie you know. for that reason. Well, I mean, you know, people who watch It's a Wonderful Life will watch Bad Santa, too. I, I think it's just – it's almost like an antidote to all the Christmas syrup, you know. And, right. Uh, and also, I think Willie says a lot of things to people that we didn't want to in the grocery store sometime, but we don't I'm can't on my do lunch it. break. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think everybody wants to, you know, do that every now and then. And I, I think people can kind of live vicariously through Willie that way. and. And also something that profane, you just got to – it's like you just – you watch it like a train wreck. It's like, wow, <laughs> they did this. And the new one's the same way. I mean we have some stuff uh, – you know, uh, I don't think people ever look at Japanese oh. food the same. No. Good to have Tony Cox is back. Oh, yeah. uh, God bless, of course, the late John Ritter and Bernie Mac out there. Oh, but yeah. Kathy Bates is fantastic. And the that, kid, that kid's Canadian, by the way. I'm from Toronto, so yeah. I looked it up. He's, he's from a, Vancouver. Yeah, yeah. Thurman yeah. Merman. He's, he yeah. still has a hankering for sandwiches. I should Absolutely, say that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Two other things before we get to let you go. You mentioned Duvall, your relationship with him. How did that happen? He, you, he's in Sling Blade. Right. You're in The Apostle, which I think right. is Duvall's masterpiece. I, I love, love that, that movie, yeah. And your character plays this racist who ends up you right. know, coming to the church and has, has uh, an awakening, so to speak. Right. How'd that develop with Duvall? He's one of the greats, obviously. I, I knew Duvall before we did Sling Blade. Uh, we had the same agent, okay. and, uh, and uh, my agent knew that I, he was my hero, you know, and uh, he hooked us up a few years before that. And Duvall came to me one time, at my to Tom Epperson and myself, and he said um, he he liked our writing, and uh, and Duvall loves Southern literature, you know, and Tex Faulkner, Texas and Faulkner and right. Steinbeck, any of that stuff, yeah. And he said, uh, "I want you guys to write me a movie where I play a black man." I swear, and uh, and. Yeah, and and I said, well, Bobby, that's kind of a tall order, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, he goes, I, 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 when I was a kid, there was a there was a black man who was, had red hair. I swear to God, and, and I I remembered that in my my town, and right. uh, and he, he wanted to play a black man, so we wrote this movie that he and James Earl Jones starred in called A Family Thing. Yeah. And uh, that was kind of how our relationship started right there, yeah. That's really cool. Speaking of, of projects, again, Against the Grain, you were nominated Best Supporting Actor, A Simple Plan. Mm. I remember my buddy Mike and I, you know when you see a great movie, you walk out and you're just silent afterwards. Mm. Like, just like, it was like an updated version of Treasure of Sierra Madre. Right. And your character, Jacob, like, there's two things that stick out to me still now. One is when he's impersonating Bill Paxton, and he's doing oh, yeah. it because his brother had said to do it. But right. he's taking real relish in it because yeah. he knows it's bugging his brother, and he's not doesn't like the plan. Exactly. And two, when, when Jacob, it's just so heartbreaking, he just says, listen, man, like, I've, I've never even kissed a girl before. Right. Like, if being rich changes that, I'm all for it. Yeah. How do you know those characters? It seems like those those outcasts, those guys from the South, you know those people better, I think, yeah. than anybody. I... 
was one more than people know. Yeah. I was, I was kind of, uh, I was raised in the woods and, uh, you know, when we moved into a town that was a you know, bigger town, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I was, I was, uh, kind of an outcast and, uh, you know, teased as a hillbilly and all this kind of stuff, you know? So, uh, so I went through all that and I was just this buck tooth kid who never, you know, figured it amount to anything and pretty insecure. Those characters are actually, uh, probably closer to me than anything else. Wow. And, uh, the character that scene you're talking about with Jacob in the car about the girl that wasn't in the script. That was mine. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. And uh, that was an actual story from when I was, when I was a great actors. Always yeah. bring the to them. <laughs> um, on a sports note, as a diehard Cardinals fan, you mentioned Jack Buck. I just read Joe Buck's book, by the way, it's terrific. Oh, yeah. I'm sure you know Joe a little mm-hmm. bit, but yeah, he's I great do. stories about Jack and just how sure. beloved he was in St. Louis. And, right. and for you, I remember one time I'm like, why is Billy Bob from Arkansas Cardinals fan? But right. If you were from the South, St. Louis was the most westernmost oh, town yeah. for years. So everybody from that region was oh, yeah. a Cardinals fan. Everybody's a Cardinal fan. So now it makes sense. Um, and their their double A club is in Little Rock, the Arkansas oh, Travelers. So that's the other part oh, yeah. as well. Exactly. Um, how painful is it hearing "Go Cubs Go"? Just oh man, it's hard. It's so hard. I mean, you you got out of like plain human decency. You have to say, <laughs> okay, it's been it's been a long time. We got to give it to you guys. But the cardinal in you, right? It's, it's wait another hundred years, right? I'm tired of this. Yeah, Eddie Vedder, get I, out of here, right? Cusack, don't want to hear yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, and Cusack's my buddy, <laughs> right? But I, I really don't want to talk to him right now. <laughs> <laughs> I could talk to you for hours. You Billy too, Bob man. Thorne, Bad Santa Two. Make sure you check it out in the theaters. It's a, a rich filmography you put together. I'm glad we were able to be nostalgic about it all. Me too, man. So this is the crazy thing. The interview ends, and he looks at me, and he smiles, big smile, and he goes, man, I knew you liked movies, but I didn't know you knew that much. So two things there, stands. One, he's a legitimate fan. Like, he knew who all of us were. Like, when they, when he walked in, it was like— Let's be clear. He's a legitimate sports fan right. and knows you through your work at ESPN. <laughs> he is not a legitimate fan of the podcast yet. Yet, but I think—I mean, you were—this is something that was interesting, by the way. Because of a confluence of events, Stanzik was actually in the room with me the entire time. Your reaction to his answers and, and his whole demeanor? Oh, I thought you were going to bring up the story how at one point during the interview, I texted you from three feet away to let you know that we only had five <laughs> minutes left and that you hadn't gotten to Bad Santa yet. Yeah, because we, we dove deep in there. as you get The process of acting, it was such good stuff. I didn't want it to get him off track, but you're right. Imagine if we'd finished it up and gone, oh, by the way. How about Bad Santa? Oh, we're out of time. Wait, what? You're here promoting Bad Santa too, and I love Bad Santa. We didn't even get into it. So, yeah, you did text at one point and, and kind of made a motion with the five. Um, but just a cool dude. We finish it up. I ask for a picture. Stanzik takes a picture. I thank him again, and, I, and we give him a Cinefile shirt. He seemed genuinely touched. Oh, thanks a lot, man. Sees the back of it, the Maple Leafs. And I said, you're, you're huge in Canada. I know you um, shot Fargo in Calgary, which I would, would have loved to talk to him about Fargo. Obviously, I loved him as Lauren Malvo. Uh, and I said, I know you've toured in Saskatchewan. He goes, yeah, yeah, my band, the Boxcutters, we've been to Saskatoon. And I said to him then, I'm like, hey, did you ever hear what happened with Gameshi? And he's got to go. Katie Mirvaldis, who is a wonderful talent producer here, has got to get him to the next spot. Like all day he's here doing 20 interviews. He's got to get to Rasil and Canel. And his face lights up and he goes, man, have I got a story for you. So we start walking, and then Katie goes, okay, you can walk with us. Then he goes into the studio, and I didn't want to be a jerk to Priscilla and be like, I'm not taking away your time. But Billy Bob goes, wait, I, I'll tell you that story. So here's the backstory to them, the story that he tells me. If you look up Billy Bob Thornton and Gian Gameshi online, G-H-O-M-E-S-H-I is the guy's last name. J-I-A-N is his first name. I'm going to say he's like the Carson Daly of Canada. Maybe that's off, but 
Young guy, big music guy, works for CBC. So if you look at the interview, it is cringe-inducing. The entire time, whatever questions he asked Billy Bob, Billy Bob cannot be more monosyllabic and just wants to have zero to do with him. He answers questions with a question. So it's really awful to watch. And, and what happened was the story was that after the interview, Billy Bob and his band, the box cutters, played in Toronto and then ended up getting booed afterwards. And apparently he said Canadian audiences, like he, he took a shot at them. Like it, was, it was a big mess, a big kerfuffle. So my cousin Zaha that said to me, he's like, hey, make sure you tell him about Gameshi. Gian Gameshi, uh, I can't remember the exact time frame, but within the last year, has been fired, was fired by his job at the CBC, and was charged um, because with, like, sexual, I don't think, again, I, I feel bad, I don't know the exact story, but it's like sexual battery and such, uh, sexual assault, because, um, you know, several women filed charges against him. And his defense was that he just likes rough sex. Apparently, Handcuffs women, slaps them, punch them, beat them, like horrific stuff. Uh, but his, his argument is that it was consensual, and he got off. He, he was not, um, you know, he didn't actually serve any time for this. But his career is over. I have no idea where who the hell is going to hire him again. His name, if you say his name in Canada, everyone immediately knows, oh, yeah, the guy who was beating women and getting away with it. Um, so it's a horrible, horrible story. So my cousin was like, just let Billy Bob know, like, hey, does he know what happened to this guy? Like, so when I said that, he goes, well, I have, I have a story for you. I'm like, oh, God. So Billy Bob walks to the afterwards guy. So here's what happened. Because we go do the interview, and I tell his producer, hey, listen. And I, I saw in the prompter he had Academy Award-winning actor Billy Bob Thornton. And Billy Bob says to the producer, hey, listen, I'm here with my buddies. Can you just introduce each of them first? And then after that, if you want to talk movies, that's totally cool. Like, I get it that people are coming to see the band because of my name. But I'm here with my buddies. Like, just mention their names first, that we're the box cutters. And then, you know, whatever, the lead is Billy Bob Thornton. And that's fine. Producer goes, all right. He said the start of the interview, when Gameshi, he goes, the look in his eye. Bill Bob goes, you know when someone's, I'm like, no, no, I know. He goes, when someone's just kind of get at you. He goes, the way he looked at me, and he started the interview with Academy Award winning actor, Billy Bob Thornton. He goes, he's just sneering at me. So Billy Bob goes, at that point, I'm like, no, screw this guy. So that's why I purposely checked out for the interview. I'm like, if you're going to be a jerk to me, I'll be a jerk right back to you. And I said, did you get booed the next time? He goes, here's the other thing. He goes, but we had a great crowd in Toronto. And he goes, there was like six people up in the balcony that booed. And all of a sudden, the next day in the paper, it was like, oh, Canadians hate Billy Bob Thornton's band. They booed him because of this interview with Gameshi. He goes, fast forward a couple of years ago. He goes, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm leaving a hotel. And there this guy is. And he comes up to me and goes, hey, we should probably clear this up. Like, what happened? It wasn't good for either of us. And uh, Billy Bob was like, all right. He goes, so they start talking about music. And he has a grudging respect for him. And, and Gameshi goes, listen, I'm writing a book. I want you to write the forward for it. It's about anxiety and some of my issues. Well, because, all right, you know, maybe maybe I'd like to do that. I don't know, but let me think about it. <laughs> he said, then he hears about this story that he's in jail for beating women, and he goes, see, I knew it. I told you this guy was an a-hole all along. <laughs> so I was like, you are a great interview. Do not believe just because of some interview with John Gameshi that Billy Bob is not a wonderful human being. He's like, I know. I go, I'm going to tell this story. He's like, do whatever you want with it. He goes, that's what happened. <laughs> Oh, it's such a great guy, man. He was, like I said, he was funny. He was entertaining. I really thought he was into it, what we were talking about. I went back. I don't know. Sansa, you have not seen The Man Who Wasn't There. No. You guys geeked out pretty hard about it, though. Yeah. I mean, this is a movie set in the 1940s, black and white film about a barber and a film noir. Like, it's not a well-known film. But as you heard him say, he said, I think that's my best work and the work that I'm proudest of. He also mentioned it in the Levitard show when they said, what character do you most love? And he goes, oh, The Man Who Wasn't There. I played Ed Crane, this barber. So I, it's so... um. 
happy to have that mutual appreciation that he was proud of his work, and I think his work is exceptional in that movie. I went back and watched it again the other day. I love that film. Just look up The Man Who Wasn't There. Even the trailer for it's amazing. The way it's shot by Roger Deakins, so good. The bad news is this. I saw Bad Santa 2, and it is a disappointment. So there's the other issue. The guy is a phenomenal guy. Could not have been a better human being. And now I have to tell you that with my integrity as a faux film critic, the movie was a disappointment. Now, the original Bad Santa, I think, stands. It's not one of these comedies that's like just a joke a minute. I think the premise is just so funny. And Willie is such a great character that the humor all stems from him. So and the freshness of it, as he said in the interview, that I think people loved it because he's reacting to all these, you know, Miracle on 34th Street and all that kind of stuff. And that Willie just doesn't care. He goes, like, how can you not like a character like that? So with Bad Santa 2, the novelty's worn off. You know exactly what Willie's like. And with comedy sequels, unfortunately, what happens, and this is what I think Bad Santa 2 falls privy to, is just more of the same without being fresh. So you've lost the novelty now. Now it's just increasingly vulgar, increasingly coarse, um, you know, without having the elements of being new. And plus, I really think this one misses John Ritter and Bernie Mac, of course, who both passed on or both so great in the original. Kathy Bates plays his mom. And she's all right. I think Kathy Bates is a good actress. Obviously, she's funny, and she gets it. Like, she's a very – she's a, an actress who's unafraid to, you know, dive right into the vulgarity and such. And she plays Willie's mom, and they – whatever. I don't want to give away the plot, but they're, they're basically, you know, back together again with Tony Cox. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, the movie falls a little bit flat. But because Billy Bob's an awesome guy, go out and see Bad Santa 2 anyways. Make up your own way. Maybe I'm completely off on this, but I, I have such high expectations for Bad Santa. Let the record show that way back when, when I had a internal newsletter here at ESPN Radio, <laughs> oh, the yeah. ESPN Audio Times, I asked you to rank your top three Christmas movies once. And number one on that list was <laughs> Bad Santa. And... My father saw it and was appalled <laughs> because the last time we had Sanzik family Christmas movie, it was Bad Santa, and we have never gone again as a family. <laughs> but you and your brothers loved it. Oh, it's hysterical, of course. <laughs> the thing is, I'm, I'm big on your – my favorite member of the Stanzik family, Jim Stanzik, of course, who is a avid listener cinephile. Moore and Elizabeth, the twins are good. Uh, Mom, I'm, you know, whatever. Dad, dad is a good human being. The way you've described your dad, he's a phenomenal human being. So if ever I get the pleasure of meeting Mr. Stanzik, the first thing I will say, listen, sir, I'm sorry that you and I differ on Bad Santa. What, what, what is his favorite? It's not like the, the ref, I'm going to guess. It's probably favorite Christmas movie. I don't know. It's but a he, wonderful He life, likes though. like Jumanji is his kind of. And, oh, he loves the barbershop films. Loves them. <laughs> like to a level I can't even understand. For those wondering, Stancic is indeed white, and his father is white. So, yes, it's a little bit surprising. This white man from Syracuse loves the barbershop movies. If you tell me, if you tell me he loves, like, Medea, we have another issue on our hands. He likes Papillon? <laughs> yeah, Steve McQueen. Okay. okay. All right, back here. Papillon, excellent. All right, coming up next, uh, we have Miles Teller. So, Miles and I go way back to our days at Celebrity Softball, which has been a real boon here for Cinephile. Terry Crews, J.K. Simmons, Miles Teller. Three of our first 15 guests I all know previously because I do play by play for Celebrity Softball for ESPN. All three of those guys have played in it. So, that already helped to help to break the water here with Miles. He talks about his film Bleed for This and also his Eagles fandom and other issues. Uh, I'll give you a review of Bleed for This in a second. But first, listen to the interview with a really exciting young actor, Miles Teller. You're listening to Cinephile, the Adnan Verk movie podcast, and a real thrill to have Miles Teller here with us in the studio. Miles and I go way back. We met at last year's Celebrity Softball. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I don't have the box score saved, but I think you went two for three, a couple of infield singles. Yeah, which is embarrassing. I mean, dude, I was playing varsity baseball at you know as a sophomore. 
uh, growing up. But right. slow pitch, it's uh, it's a different it's a different game. But but yeah, can- an infield single <laughs> in the. Uh, Celebrity <laughs> softball game. You're never, you're never proud. I was just bummed. I actually had to like beat it out. I, remember, I never <laughs> wanted to have to beat it out in that game. I thought I was going to be hitting dingers, and it just didn't happen. I think what it was is you were apprehensive by the size of the crowd because you said to me like, "Are they going to be full here in Cincinnati?" I'm like, "We're expecting thirty thousand for this." You know, as that was one of the coolest. I've been to the. I remember saying like, "I was." I had been to the Oscars at that point, Mike. I said, and this was this was cooler. For sure. I mean, I, I'd always dreamed about that. I'd always dreamed about, like, being – I mean, I guess back in the day they had, like, rock and jock, but just being <laughs> on an actual stadium right? and, and playing on the field that these guys play in. It's, it's, how many people get that experience as just fans is incredible. Well, J.K. Simmons played this year. Yeah. So as soon as I saw him, I said, you know, Miles was here last year. He's like, yeah, where is that – <laughs> I know. Uh, okay, so now I know. I know now. I know what kind of vocabulary we're working with on this show. <laughs> J.K. Simmons. Like, I was just astonished that that was the right where he went to. He's like, yeah, yeah like, not like, hey, where's Miles, my buddy? He was like, boom. Yeah, that's. Um, you know, I don't know. He's like the stepfather. I wish I'd never met, <laughs> but somehow we're just uh, we're linked for for life. Yeah, I mean. He, he owes you, and I don't mean this sarcastically, he owes you in small part with the Oscar because of how good you guys work together in Whiplash. Yeah. And I know Anytime felt- you win supporting actor, usually the lead actor had uh, <laughs> something to do with it. Right. So, like, his victory is also victory for you. You can never let him forget that. Like, hey, whatever you say, JK, I was the lead of Whiplash. It yeah. wasn't Best Picture nominee. Yeah. He's, um, I don't know. I think he's he's looking for one more great ride before he goes off into the sunset. And, and I keep telling him, well, I'm busy. You know, figure it out. Yeah, when are they going to re-team? Uh, yeah. We'll let you know, JK. Yeah, I don't Yeah, I don't know, man. I'm pretty busy. He really did enjoy, like, taunting you and belittling you. I'm like, yeah, what, <laughs> I go, what actor wouldn't? Like, how much yeah. fun would that be? Like, Damien Chazelle's like, all right, do you want to uh, just, just torture Miles again today? Like, yeah, we're going to do that again. Yeah, pretty much. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there's uh, been a couple co-stars of mine that would have uh, enjoyed that opportunity. But in, in, in reality, and you'll never hear this from JK, the set was actually a lot of fun. Right. J.K.'s a baseball guy. I'm a baseball guy. Yeah, he's a Tigers fan. It's, you know, baseball's a different sport. I feel like if your dad didn't teach it to you, mm-hmm. then you probably missed it. But baseball fans, they just kind of, I don't know, there's a certain, um, it's, it's yeah, there's just a certain dialogue that they, that they use that's different from other sports. But we were laughing on set. It's just absurd because I was like 25 at the time, and he's slapping me in the face. Or maybe I was like, yeah, exactly. He's like, slap me in the face. And this guy, I'm having... These conversations with about the Tigers and Phillies on action, he slapped me, and I'm having to like drop a single tear because it calls for it in the script. Are you one of those single tier? I'm like, oh my god, I literally have to drop a tear right, right. now. And then it's like, hey, what do you think about Jimmy Rollins? You, you like what he yeah. and Scott Rowland? Uh, yeah, exactly. Oh, Scott Rowland. I've not heard that name in so long. Classic Phillies, because you're 29, so like yeah. your your Phillies fandom, like Ryan Howard, obviously. Yeah, later, but like even about my yeah, my first team was that you know that '93 team. Darren Zolan's my Rock. favorite player. Kruk, uh, Mick yeah. Morandini, Kevin Stocker, um, Eisenreich, Incavilia, Dykstra, you know, Ricky Metallico. Those, yeah, those Mitch Williams, those are those are my guys. That's all one. Charlie Hayes, <laughs> before he was catching that out for the Yankees. I don't want to remind you, but being from Toronto, 93, Joe Carter. Yeah, I'm trying to think. <laughs> I thought that was the year of the strike, but it's uh, maybe that was 94. I don't know. I do love the fact that, like, fandom the way it's created, just what you did, you can literally rhyme off the exact batting order or 
whatever of, of your youth. You yeah, can, I remember we were guys, talking yeah. even the hockey. You were like, oh, Flyers, Lindros, yeah, Legion just of Doom, like, yeah, yeah, that stuff. Snow and Hextall and right. Brindamore and Gelato. <laughs> yeah, all those. I don't even really. I, I, yeah, I haven't really followed hockey that much um, lately. But yeah, I mean, Philly's such. I mean, the Phillies are honestly probably third in that town. It's Eagles. And then Flyers, Flyers too. I would huge. It's a huge hockey town. And then, and then when the Phillies won in two thousand eight, because we had been bottom of the barrel for you know for so long, right? That was uh, there's a sports bar in New York called Wogies. Okay, that's a Philly sports bar. That's right. Um, good cheesesteaks. And I watch you know watch them win the World Series there. I cried because it's like if I know and I tell my girlfriend this because I'll be in the airport. Somebody have a hat on. Sports is just it's um. You know, you just instantly ha- – I can. I don't care if I know nothing else about you and I see you wearing a Phillies hat. We both we both love that. And so I'm, I am I like you. Right. If I don't – you could be a terrible person. You could be a tar- terrible human being, but I'll be able to, you know, have a conversation with you and enjoy your company for a little bit. That's the greatness of fandom. You're listening yeah. to Cinephile, the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast. We're talking with Miles Teller. Your journey, for those who are unaware, at NYU, in your own words, you smoked a ton of pot. Yeah. Having said that, you 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 lived the lifestyle that which they, is now legal in a lot of states. <laughs> so nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but this this is amazing. How soon after graduation did you get that role with Nicole Kidman in Rabbit Hole? So I was yeah, I got a manager uh, pretty much right before my senior year, which NYU actually doesn't doesn't really uh, advocate. They don't want you to start working professionally. They think it, while you're in school, focus on school and. And then have the business come to you afterwards. But I don't know. I got a manager, started auditioning, and I booked Rabbit Hole. I was doing an NYU student film maybe like two weeks before I graduated. And then I got the call saying that I just booked this part. <laughs> and you go from only doing things with your peers. I'm only doing scenes with guys and girls my own age. Mm-hmm. To then, boom, three weeks later, I was on set with John Cameron Mitchell and Nicole Kidman and Aaron Eckhart. And no rehearsal, which is something I I love now. But yeah. at the time, I was like, "What do you mean? No, we don't get to practice this first. <laughs> and uh, yeah, man, you're just in a scene with Nicole. And even even now, it's like I, I was just at the Governor's Awards, and everybody that you can think of is at this thing. Mm-hmm. And I still, and me and Nicole have known each other for a couple of years now. But yeah, man, you still work with people that you just kind of grew up with, or it's hard to not see them as um, something bigger than themselves, you know, just, you don't, it's hard to, now I'm better at it, but, you know, for me, those first couple takes, I remember just really feeling an out-of-body experience. Oh, dude, that's our sports center spot running right now. Oh, look at that, that's right, you're on, wait a second, you're with Joe Tessitore right now on these ESPN commercials. Thank God, there's Vinny. (laughs) Vinny Pazienta, that's right. Yeah, it's nice to break up this Giants gonna make the Super Bowl crap. (laughs) A lot of talk today on ESPN. How much ESPN do you want? What are the Giants? Five and four? Six and three. Oh, six and three? Beat the Bengals 21 20 on Monday Night Football. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I couldn't believe we lost to him in, 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 but the, in that but, game. But and, the Eagles, great at home. Like, big win just well, undefeated at home, yeah. Right. We're four great at home. Five, had, a ten, had a 10 point lead in the fourth quarter against the Cowboys at home. Yeah, it was painful. But it's what like, do you hate more what do you do? Cowboys or Giants? You know, it's funny. So, for my uncles, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? It's like, Everybody hates Dallas, and that's because, yeah, for a long time, you know, Dallas was winning all those years. For me personally, in my generation, I was talking about it the other day. I'm like, I hate the Giants. Mm-hmm. A, my buddy's a Giants fan, and I just— <laughs> Buddies always make it worse. Oh, my chirping. God. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just chirping. But, you know, they've won two Super Bowls, and they've kind of been the team, even though they're not putting up the numbers, wins, and losses. Right. Eagles averaged 10 wins a season, I think, with Andy Reid. Yep. Uh, Giants are getting these Super Bowls, so I hate the Giants. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty frustrating. Some people will tell me I need to play Peyton Manning in a biopic someday. <laughs> and then some people say I look like Eli Manning. Stacy, you like that pick? Yeah. You think Miles looks like Peyton? <laughs> I, I, I mean... I think Miles is a little more sophisticated, you know, a little, a little hey, more handsome than Peyton. Hey, Manning. what you know? What are you going to do? But um, I'm saying that's why you got not as some, big. Sometimes you stay off Twitter <laughs> for good reason. Yeah, exactly. Bleed for this. I was apprehensive before I saw it because I go another boxing movie. Like we've had so many of these. I get why actors want to play it. First and foremost, you were in phenomenal shape in this movie. Thank you. You were in good shape when I met you a year ago. But like, what did you have to do? Like salmon and broccoli, twelve hundred calories a day. Like you're shredded in this movie. Yeah, I, it was funny because me and Michael B. We were both doing Michael B. Jordan, right? So we decreed, and we were both filming Fantastic Four at the time that we were training for our boxing movies because we were both supposed to start right after Fantastic Four. Yeah. So Mike was bulking up. He was eating, yeah, mounds of. I mean, healthy food, but mounds Gross. of it. And yeah. I was just, I, I had to put on what's called lean muscle mass. So yeah. I had to lose weight while also building muscle. So I dropped 20 pounds, got down to 6% body fat. And I was that's just to get you in the door. You know, <laughs> visually you have to look like a boxer for people to buy it. Right. Then you got to box like the guy, and then you got to handle yourself like a, a boxer. And, and Vinny also moved up three weight classes. That was part of his legacy. He won titles at lightweight and junior middle, which Roberto Duran was the only guy to do it at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but we're filming in 24 days. So I started at 168. For the first fight, and then by the last fight, uh, I gained 15 pounds back in about two and a half weeks. Oh, man. Yeah. But that was fun because we're in Providence. I don't know if anybody's been there, but yeah, I'm sure somebody's been there. But I don't know if you've been there. And uh, it's <laughs> like, I don't know if anyone's ever been there. It's Tourism like, in Providence. Yeah. Uh, but they have this area called Federal Hill, and yes. they have a really, a really proud Italian-American community with some incredible food that for a while I was just staring at. Even in the movie, all the pasta scenes, like I had to spit it out. Oh. So I just was like very strict calories. Well, like I said, what I love about the movie was, A, it's based on the true stories. You mentioned Vinny Paz, yeah. which I didn't know. Like I'm a sportscaster. I know boxing, and I've yeah. never heard of Vinny Paz. And it reminded me a lot of ways of The Fighter. You touched on the fact there's that strong Italian-American element in the film. Yeah, and the particularly family. Robin. It's like it, it reminded me much in the way The Fighter was, yeah. working class guy, and it's focusing on his life story and how he overcomes that. Also, again, to the physicality, you had to have that halo on all the time. Yeah. I remember a dude in high school had one of those, and like my heart went out to him. How did you do brutal. that day after day filming? Awful. Yeah, it's brutal. I, um, There's a scene where your girlfriend's trying to kiss you. And it's like, no, don't worry yeah. about it. It's fine. Like, yeah, Vinny wouldn't use the term girlfriend. Uh, <laughs> she's just one of the birds. She's one of the birds that's around. Right. He. That was funny. When I was reading the script, every scene, there was a different girl's name, and I felt like I kept forgetting the name because I was like, oh, it's good. I didn't know about him. And then I realized, no, it's yeah, it's, it's a different girl with Vinny every, every scene. Right. Uh, it's just who he is. But, yeah, we, you know, this metal halo, because if you guys who don't know, Vinny broke his neck in basically the prime of his career. Mm-hmm. And when he got this halo put on, he didn't want to, he wasn't just going to relax in it. He, he continued to work out and he started bench pre- trying to bench press five days after breaking his neck. Yeah. Uh, which is brutal. But, yeah, I mean, the girl basically, we got it from a hospital, uh, put it on my head. If it was a studio, I've had more fittings for shoes in movies than I did on this. It was an independent film. So she got it from a hospital, <laughs> put it on my head once, and we said, okay, this will work in theory. Yeah. Show up on set, and we realized the thing wants to move around a lot, but we couldn't, you know, we, we didn't really have any options. So we just put little rubber pieces on the end of each of the four screws and just put it in my head. Kind of like a vice and just put it in as tight as we could so that it wouldn't move. The scene that is wrenching is when the doctor takes it off. And and, you're, and Vinny says, yeah. I don't want any drugs. And, and, and he goes, Doc, true. you're going the wrong way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lefty Lucy, Doc, you're going the wrong way. He goes, no, no, it hurts. It feels like it's screwing in because the it's calcified. It calcified yeah, it calcifies um, uh, around the bone. I was just talking to 
uh, Field Yates, and she was saying she worked in, I think, yeah, physical therapy and Stefania Bell. Yeah, oh yeah, sorry, Stefania Bell. Uh, she feels a little effeminate, but he's yeah, 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 right, yeah, sorry. Uh, okay. We had our near premiere last night, and uh, I went to bed about four a.m. So <laughs> I'll be transparent here. But yeah, it was tough. But also, I talk about. I don't. I don't want to. Yeah, it was difficult. But as an actor, and that's why I, I think. Well, I, yeah, I do enjoy these movies where you can be pretty obsessive and um, you know really throw yourself into these roles because you there is a safety net there. I'm not actually. We don't actually pay the consequences for these things. We get to kind of relive these moments, and yeah, they can be really tough and challenging. But at the end of the day, you get to go. You know, you go home. Uh, I have a buy. You know, we have a fight coordinator. I'm not. You know, you just have all of these things uh, around you. So I don't. I don't. With that, with that being said, it was tough, but it, it's 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 nothing. When you think about what Vinny did in real life with it, it's just it's insane. Even with your life, the parallels here as far as the car accident, because in Whiplash is a critical scene with a car accident. Obviously, with Vinny, it completely changes his life. And you had a crazy car accident growing up. Tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, I did. I I was in a pretty severe car accident when I was twenty years old. My uh, buddies and I, we were coming back from a uh, music festival in Connecticut. It was in Bridgeport. It's called oh, Gathering of the Vibes. Oh, man. Where are my deadheads at? Am I right? <laughs> Bad yeah. memories of Connecticut. Yeah. Leave on hell on the drums. If he had said name one city in Connecticut, I would have been like, oh, I'm going to go to Bridgeport. <laughs> yeah. It's exactly a hot spot for, for uh, kind of deadheads and jam bands. Uh, so, but yeah, so we were driving back from that, and my buddy lost control of my car. Going, you know, like the speed limit on I-95, it was like 75. So he lost control going 80 miles per hour uh, on a major highway. So we went across three lanes of traffic, back across, went to the grass median, flipped eight times. I flew out the window and uh, the car landed straight up. And my buddy was driving, my buddy in the back seat, car landed straight up and it kind of come to and and uh, look in the front seat, and I'm not there. My buddy goes, where's Miles? Oh. My best friend in the back is like, oh, my God, and gets out of the car and looks around for me and sees me, and I'm just laying like 40 feet from the car, unconscious, covered in blood. You know, he looked at me and, and thought I was dead. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember him walking up to me, and I look at him, and I say, hey, man, what happened? He goes, well, he's got in a car accident. Oh, man, my mom's going to be so pissed. I can't believe I just wrecked my car. And I try and sit up, and he just looked at me and said, Miles, don't, don't sit up. You're hurt. You're hurt really bad. And the look on his face let me – so then I remembered where I was at, but and I was thinking, oh, my God, I've been ejected. Uh, thinking all the things that come along with that, I couldn't feel my legs at the time. I literally thought I was paralyzed, and I did, it was overwhelming, so I blacked out and woke up in a hospital. That's, that's unreal. Yeah, take that, J.K. Simmons, you <laughs> <laughs> What have you done? <laughs> right, like you what said. What have you done, JK? But you think that a lot of people, if you grew up, you grew up in Florida, that people yeah. just have car accidents. Like it's always a my not yeah, to your level, obviously. Yeah, not to this level, but it, it was. It, well, yeah, it was on. It, I looked. Yeah, in the, in the town I grew up in. I mean, this happened kind of on the freeway. But the, yeah, the town I grew up in is small country town. Yeah, and yeah, just a lot of dark back roads, and I lost. Two of my best friends in car accidents less than a year uh, after my car accident, like five weeks from each other. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's sad, but there's kind of like every year there's, there's going to be a one, you know, one or two kids that goes to a local high school that, that pass away in a car accident. 
Miles Teller, before we uh, finish up here, I do want to ask about War Dogs. I thought it was fantastic. And what I liked about it was it reminded me of like what a Scorsese movie would be. Yeah. Like the, the, the sense of adrenaline and the music and you and Jonah Hill, both supercharged performances. Like yeah. It was almost as if like you would adapt Goodfellas to like a younger generation and there were arms dealers instead of gangsters. Well, but, these guys were. I mean, they, yeah, this character that Jonah had, it's so inspired rare. Inspired by Scarface. Yeah, and it's just so rare to get a character at that age. I mean, I think that's what we're always – for me, I just feel like I'm biding my time in my 20s. But you really get your good parts in 30s and 40s. Right. But for Jonah to have a character in his 20s who's just does not give a and is pulling out guns in the middle of the day and doing all these things that these guys, you know, did. They were the biggest international arms dealers in the world as a couple of 23-year-old stoners. You know, it's really the power that they had at that age. Is, right. It was uh, unbelievable. But yeah, Todd Phillips is an incredible filmmaker. Yeah, what he did obviously with The Hangover and now he did with this film, which is yeah. comedy and also echoes the drama as well. Go check out Bleed for this. It's a terrific new film in theaters this Friday. Miles Teller, when you think about best actors under 30 – I think you're one of them. I cool. mean, you're 29 years old. Well, I'm turning 30 in um, February, so. All right. Best actor in Hollywood under 30 miles teller for at least right a few now, months longer. Get it while it's hot because in two months, he's one of 30 actors good under 40. Before I forget, because I know this is your first time at ESPN, I got a T-shirt. This is our podcast. You know oh, that? cool. And since I'm Canadian, I rank Thank movies you. at a Maple Leaf. So there you get your four Maple Leafs here. So. Okay. We're going to be the only people that give you a present. You're going to go back to your girlfriend. How was ESPN? I, oh, this guy gave me a I shirt. just worked with uh, Taylor Kitsch. He's Canadian. So oh, there I, you go. Uh, I'll, uh, I'll wear this with pride. Around him and, and thank you. This is an extra small. No, that's a large. Uh, I know, large, I know. I was large. like, you get an extra large if you I want. I look small on <laughs> screen of whiplash, but I'm actually pretty ripped here, buddy. Well, Kevin Hart so. was furious. He was like, you don't have an extra small. I'm like, we only have larges and XLs. Wow. He he refused to tweet out the podcast because of that. I'm like, hang on a second, just because the shirt didn't fit. Unreal. I I, I tell you what, man. I'll, I'm going to tweet out this podcast regardless I, I, of the size shirt I get <laughs> because I don't I don't value things in that manner. Take that to the bank, Miles Teller. Thanks, thank man. you. Appreciate it. All right, so Miles, as you can tell, he's a good guy. He's a funny guy. He's, he does not uh, take himself too seriously. Um, by the way, as I mentioned there in the podcast, the Big Eagle sweatshirt on, so clearly wearing his fandom on his sleeve, was really appalled by the covers the Giants were getting because when that came on Monday night, he's like, what, Giants Super Bowl bound? Come on. So he, he does sound like a typical uh, Eagles fan in that respect. The good news is this. Bleed for This is a surprisingly good movie. As I said to him, I was – Pleasantly surprised because I just feel like, you know, how many more boxing movies can we have? That market is so oversaturated. But I think, you know, even if a story is well-worn but it's told well, that it has appeal. And that's what happens with Bleed for This. I did not know the true story of Vinny Pazienza. And he's this, you know, up-and-coming boxer from working-class Rhode Island, large Italian-American family, um, who's on his way up and then suffers this terrible car accident and then has to work his way back to the top. And I've seen some reviews. Some, I mean, the critics are always so smarter than I am. One of them has said it's, it's like Million Dollar Baby with a happy ending. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of way you can describe it. Goes in the hospital, ends up coming back in, does win a fight, was a boxer. Um, but Teller's commitment is really what stands out in the movie. You know, he was humble about saying, listen, I'm an actor. It's not like I've got to wear the halo 24-7. It's not like I actually have screws in my head. But honestly, his performance really kind of sells the movie. And, and so does Aaron Eckhart, who plays his trainer. If I'd had more time, Miles would have asked. Aaron Eckhart, you got to be wearing like a fat suit because I don't – just the way he put on like a big gut. I'm like, Aaron Eckhart, I don't, he looks like 40 pounds heavier, shaved his head uh, just to play the role. But he's a really good actor, and I thought, again, he, he nailed that part. Um, so check out Bleed for this. Like I said, I understand if you're apprehensive going, really, another sports movie, another boxing movie. But 
I thought it had a, a real authenticity about it. And the director, Ben Younger, if you like the movie Boiler Room, he hasn't done a whole lot, but I think a lot of young men our age love Boiler Room. And he did that movie, which I think was 2005 now. He hasn't worked a whole lot. 2009, I believe he did Prime. Uh, so he hasn't done a ton. But that the younger style is like very kind of, you know, obviously look at Boiler Room, very masculine, uh, very intense. And I believe for this carries through with that as well. So check out Bleed for This. And our thanks to Miles Teller uh, for coming by. I want to give a thought to you about a movie called Moonlight. Uh, if you're a real movie geek or you check out my work on goldderby.com, you know that it's getting significant Oscar buzz right now. Uh, the way we have it right now is Moonlight's going to be nominated for Best Picture. And Mahershala Ali is going to be nominated for Best Supporting Actor. In fact, he might be the favorite right now. And it's a really good film. I'm giving it three. Ma- By the way, uh, the reviews for Bad Santa 2 will give it two Maple Leafs. Um, Bleed for this, I'm giving three Maple Leafs. And Moonlight, I'm giving three Maple Leafs. Currently on Rotten Tomatoes, it has like a 98% ranking. So it almost sounds like I'm uh, one of the few who's not overwhelmingly in favor of it. But it's a story It's told in three parts about a young black boy who's coming to terms with his sexuality. So the uh, the first section, he's just a really little guy. Uh, and he was befriended by Meher Ali, who plays a drug dealer uh, who has a conscience and kind of looks out for him. And there's one scene at the dinner table that's just fantastic because the, the little boy – uh, asks the drug dealer who's kind of, you know, taking on this parental role with him. He goes, hey, what is this? And it's a famous gay slur. You all know what it is. He says, what does this mean? And the look on Mahershal Ali's face, like, you know, you're a kid. How do you know what that word means? He's like, well, why, do you, why are you asking me? He's like, well, that's all the kids at school call me. He's like, is that what I am? And he's like, no, I mean, <clears throat> no one should be called that. That's, that's a bad name for someone. But if you are what that name is suggesting, you know, that, I mean, that's cool. Like, I, you know, I got no issue with that. And the kid's like, oh, okay. And then he asks him some other questions. And there's a real vulnerability to this kid who doesn't, you know, understand the world. And the second chapter of his life now takes place in high school. And now he's really getting mistreated and mocked by his friends. And it taps into the fact that, you know, if you ask people about gay culture, let's say specifically if you're black and gay, you know, you've got two strikes against you, so to speak, and that the way that people are coming at you with prejudice. And if you're in the wrong situation, um, you know, you're facing discrimination within your own community. You know, try being Jamaican and, and telling someone that you're gay. Like, go, go to that country and, and outwardly say that, and you'll see what kind of reaction you get. So Moonlight does an excellent job of, of showing what that world is like and really a story that hasn't been told until now. And I think that's why, you know, critics are certainly jumping on it saying, go see this movie. We don't see stories about these people, young, black, gay kids growing up in inner city. That You hear the inner city part. You hear about black kids. We don't hear about the black gay kids and what their life must be like and what kind of torture they go through. The third chapter then shows the kid what he's like as an adult. And that's a real surprise because early on you go, okay, I see where this is going. He's being tortured. He's being tormented. I see where this is winding up. I don't, won't give anything away, but the third chapter, you're really surprised when you see what this young boy who becomes a high school kid who now is a grown man, what he's now become. And it's actually really quite sad when you see the, the tragedy within it, but in a way that is very surprising. Barry Jenkins is the director. He's getting a lot of hype for this. He's going to be nominated for Best Director. So if you really like films – Art House Circuit, so to speak. You like your Oscar bait? Go check out Moonlight. I'm giving it three Maple Leafs. Meher Shalali, terrific. He's going to be nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He's a really terrific actor, and it's good to see him getting some love. A Scorsese story. Silence is Marty's new movie. It's coming out December 23rd. Has not screened anywhere yet, as Matt actually told us of Rotten Tomatoes last time. But if you love Martin Scorsese like I do, do yourself a favor and go check out the New York Times Magazine. The cover is The Passion of Martin Scorsese. The article is by Kevin Ellie, and it is sensational. He uh, interviews Marty at his townhouse in New York. Uh, after a busy day of editing Silence in Midtown, then goes back to his townhouse. I think it's uh, on the East End. And uh, just sits in Scorsese's living room and just has a conversation with him. And he even describes, like, the room. He's like, it's exactly what you expect. Like, it's all, like, 
Jean Renoir movie posters from the 40s and like French films. And then he shows him like stuff that he has in his house, all this memorabilia. But he, he talks about faith and he says how, you know, in all your films, you always have faith. Notably, Last Temptation of Christ and Kundun. But even Taxi Driver is a really a movie about faith because t- Travis sees himself as this avenging angel who's going to save this woman, you know, and he sees his own salvation as self-sacrifice. I'm going to put myself out there kill all the thugs, wash all the scum and filth off the streets, and end up sacrificing myself for the greater good. And Silence is a story about Jesuit missionaries who faced unreal discrimination in 17th century Japan. I, I was reading the article. I don't want to know anything about the movie. You know, I haven't even seen a trailer for it yet. So they'd start to describe specific scenes. I tried to skip ahead a little bit. But Adam Driver, who I don't know a lot of his work, but he was in Star Wars, plays the bad guy. Uh, he's also in Girls, Lena Dunham's show. Lost 51 pounds for this movie. And the guy's already thin to begin with. Apparently, they said he's like 170. He's like 5'8", 170. And he lost 51 pounds. So, like, it was unreal, like, the level that this guy went through. Eight months of shooting in Taiwan. Andrew Garfield's the main actor. He said, you're so intimidated because it's Scorsese. And he puts you totally at ease because he has so much faith in you. It's like going to film school. He gives you a bunch of movies to watch before you even look at the script. and go, all right, this is your homework. Go watch these and figure out all of this stuff. Uh, Liam Neeson's in the movie as well. They said to make it, uh, it took, it was originally when Marty first got the script, it was on Boxcar Birth, I believe. He got it there. Maybe, maybe it wasn't Boxcar Birth. I think that was actually Last Temptation. Forgive me. But whenever he got the book, it took him, it's 27 years from now until actually making the film when he first read the book Silence. I can't wait to read the book. Apparently, it's awesome. But I, again, I don't, I, I did this with Shutter Island. I read the book first when I heard Marty was making the movie, and then I watched the movie. And I like Shutter Island, but I think I would have liked the movie more if I didn't know the ending. I already knew what was going to happen, what, what was going to happen with Leo. So this time I'm like, no, no, watch December 23rd, you're going to see the movie. December 24th, you're going to go see it again. Christmas Day, you're going to see it a third time. Then go out, buy Silence, and read the book and see how good a job they did up capturing it. Because uh, Jay Cox, Marty's longtime friend, is the one who adapted the book. Liam Neeson said that they all worked for scale. In fact, the direct quote of Neeson said with regards to his salary was a pittance. And he said we had no issue with it because uh, he has a small role in gangs in New York. But he goes, listen, to work with Marty, uh, we, we all do it for free. Like Andrew Garfield will make another amazing Spider-Man. He makes his money there. I'll make another Taken. That's where I make my mo- money. Same thing Jonah Hill said. Wolf of Wall Street, it's fine. I'll, I'll make my, my comedies and I'll make my money there. To work with Marty, we'll do it for free. And Scorsese himself waived defeat, did not make any money for making silence. So check out Kevin Ellie's article about Marty, The Passion of Martin Scorsese. It is a um, really good read, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what's going to be coming out. Uh, we got lots of good movies on the way. So this is the time, the last six weeks of the year, I feel like the buzz is really building uh, for quality films. So I think Cinephile will definitely be a destination here. As always, I'm Adam Amberg. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Burke Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off.
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.